borderline personality disorder. And this is an episode that has been obviously a long time coming, but I wanted to wait until I felt like I could do this topic justice. And before we begin, I want to shout out a book that super helped me in my own life, which I'll talk about momentarily, about learning about borderline personality disorder. It's called Stop Walking on Eggshells, and it's by Paul Mason. So before we begin... Allie, I want to ask you to just give an honest answer about what you think of when you hear someone talk about borderline personality disorder. Right. So I've had a lot of time to think about this answer. (laughs) And um, I, you know, I kind of like to separate my academic understanding of borderline personality disorder um, and kind of the criteria and the examples that we learn about and focus on kind of my experience with it. And the first thing that usually comes to my mind are examples of people I've known in my teens and when I was a child and kind of I I will never forget the interpersonal relationships um, and the issues that we had not only with myself but others um, that were involved. So I think that sounds like where you're going with, with the book that I, I've only seen the cover. I haven't read it but I do yeah. know that it, it's I it might be one of the few person well most personality disorders have a lot of interpersonal issues but um, I would think that this one has a huge impact on on loved ones as well yeah I think it's you know the one that of any personality disorder probably is the one that involves you know the most interpersonal difficulties so This episode, while I'm going to, you know, also present what borderline personality disorder is from an academic standpoint, um, what I'm really going to talk about is what it's like to care about someone with borderline personality disorder. And I think that people who are listening to this episode, everyone has been impacted by someone with borderline personality disorder, whether they realize it or not. And um, borderline personality disorder is also so prevalent that there's no way that there's pe- that there aren't people who are listening who have this disorder. So not only, it really does just, I guess, affect everyone in some sort of way is what I want to say. So part of the reason, I guess, it took me a little while to want to make this episode is because borderline personality disorder is such a controversial, complex topic. Um, and I think that's unfortunate in a lot of ways because because people are afraid to talk about it, it's not as recognized as it should be by even members of like the mental health community. And as a result of this, even like the general public, I would say probably most people aren't even aware of this disorder, although it is getting some more recognition in recent years but even the people who are aware of the name they're probably pretty ignorant of what it actually is although both these factors have improved there is still certainly a very very long way to go and I think most people um, like we discussed in the bipolar episode what they think of when they think someone's bipolar is more similar to actual borderline personality disorder And I also want to say before we continue, in this episode, I might say borderline, I might say BPD, I might say BP, 
it's all referencing people with borderline personality disorder. Um, so there's just a few little different terminology. So one thing I did also want to say is that according to the American Psychiatric Association, the incidence of BPD is nearly that of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder combined. And I would actually say it's probably much more significant than that. Um, I but I just want to give people an idea of how prevalent this is and how many people have it and how much it affects all of our lives. So on a very basic level, borderlines feel things more intensely. They act in ways that seem more extreme, and they have difficulty regulating their emotions and behavior. So where does the term borderline come from? Researchers coined the term borderline in the first half of the 20th century when they thought people who exhibited behaviors we now associated with BPD were on the border between neurosis and psychosis. Although the concept was discarded in the 1970s, the name stuck. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I can't believe I'm asking this. What is the difference between neurosi- neurosis and psychosis? Well, neurosis just is referring to someone who's like neurotic, which uh, it's just sort of means like, I guess a easy way to frame it would be someone on like the anxiety spectrum and then so psychosis. nervous. Psychosis. Yes. Yes, okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. And then psychosis is, we did an episode on that. Yep. Got it. <laughs> yep. And one thing I also want to say before I continue is that, you know, borderline personality disorder doesn't mean that someone is good or bad. There are good people with borderline personality disorder and there are shitty people with borderline personality disorder. So it does not define who you are as a person. It's something people have. And so before I go any further, I want to share this quote from the beginning of the book that I referenced. I must be defective. That was the only explanation I could think of for his behavior. Why did he act so loving one moment and then rip me to shreds the next? Why did he tell me I was talented and wonderful and then scream at me that I was contemptible and the cause of all his problems? If he loved me as much as he said he did, why did I feel so manipulated and powerless? And how could someone so intelligent and educated sometimes act so completely irrational? On a conscious level, I knew I hadn't done anything to deserve this treatment. But over several years, I came to accept his view of reality, that I was flawed and everything really was my fault. So even after the relationship ended, my feelings of distrust and low self-esteem remained. I began seeing a therapist. After several months, she revealed something to me about my former friend that would radically change my life and those of many others. The behavior you describe is very characteristic of someone with borderline personality disorder, she said. I can't make a diagnosis since I've never met him, but from what you've said, he certainly seems to fit the criteria. So how I discovered this book was when I was entering residency, I broke up with my ex who I said in an earlier episode, I now believe is a borderline and a narcissist. And when I was you know, talking to my therapist, I believe that I was like crying. And I said, you know, I think, I think he's borderline. And this was around the time I was going through the breakup. And she was like, you know, I can't say whether he is or not, but you should read this book, Stop All Hannah Eggshells. And that's how 
I found this book and I felt it was life-changing at the time and still think it's a phenomenal book. So what is borderline personality disorder? According to the DSM, a personality disorder is an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectation of the individual's culture. Personality disorders are pervasive and inflexible, which means they're unlikely to change. They tend to be stable over time, and they lead to distress or impairment in interpersonal relationships. So that's defining personality disorders in general, and then borderline personality disorder is obviously one of the personality disorders, and besides narcissism, probably the most widely recognized. So the very definition of a personality disorder is that it causes distress for both the person who has the disorder and those who interact with him or her. Since the description of BPD seems so negative, people diagnosed with it often feel stigmatized. I have and a one question. Thing, I'm yeah, sorry. go ahead. You mentioned um, you mentioned having to kind of go against the norms of a culture as a definition. How? Where did that? Was that always in the DSM as the definition? Because I feel like that's very subjective. I mean, in terms of different cultures, it's hard to define a norm. I get you know I get that, but what, what do you take that to mean? Well, so I don't know if it was always in the DSM, but I think it especially comes into play like, you know, there are some cultures that might have more magical thinking or there might like history, things that could potentially be considered histrionic in our culture would be more of the norm. So I think it just means that these things can vary from culture to culture. And in one person's culture, something might be normal. And in another culture, it might be a sign that, you know, there's... Uh, some level of a deeper issue but it would probably only come to the attention of a of a you know professional if it deviates enough from the culture otherwise yeah. there's, it's a non-issue yeah and by yeah. definition personality disorders usually don't get professional help and they usually fly under the radar the only one that often interacts with you know psychiatrists is people who suffer from borderline personality disorder, you know, like, as you're going to see when we talk through some of the symptoms, some of the symptoms make sense that they would end up having to interact with a psychiatrist at some point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, something else to remember is that ultimately the only person who can control the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of the person with BPD is the borderline him or herself. So we can't change them. And so now I'm going to talk about the traits of borderline personality disorder. And something to keep in mind is everybody has traits of personality disorders. But, you know, there has to be a certain number for it to cross the line from just having traits of something to actually being a personality disorder. And a simple way to think of it outside of the DSM is it's generally a disorder and not a trait when it's starting to have a very negative impact on your life. So most of us have traits of things, but they don't totally destroy our lives. So the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder reads as follows. A pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image, and moods, and marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. 
And I'm gonna go through them right now just to list them, but then we're gonna go through each one more in depth. So the first one, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Two, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. Three, identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image. Four, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging. For example, spending, sex, substance abuse, shoplifting, reckless driving, and binge eating. Five, recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, threats, or self-mutilating behavior. Six, effective instability due to marked reactivity of mood. An example is intense episodic dysphoria, which just means like the opposite of euphoria, irritability, or anxiety, and these moods usually last a few hours and only rarely more than a few days. Seven, chronic feelings of emptiness. Eight, inappropriate, intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. For example, frequent displays of temper, constant anger, recurrent physical fights. And nine, transient, stress-related, paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms. So we're now going to get into explaining each of these. And before I begin, I want to say that I am going to use examples of people in my life who have had borderline personality disorder, obviously, because examples help us understand this better. And I can share examples from my personal life, but I can't really share examples from patients and good conscience besides like general stuff that, you know, describes hundreds of people. So the two people in my life that I have been closest to with borderline personality disorder, although I've been close to many, many people, are my ex, who was also a narcissist. So a lot of the behaviors I describe from him might seem pretty extreme and severe, so keep that in mind. But I'm going to try to focus on specifically relevant to borderline personality disorder. And my mom also has borderline personality disorder, but... She does not, in my opinion, have narcissistic personality disorder. So I think it's good to note that there are a lot of people with coexisting things. And then there are some people who might be more like sweet borderlines versus like, I don't know how to how else to say it, but like terrible borderlines because they also have narcissism or something else that's a little bit more difficult to deal with. Um, and neither of these people have been officially diagnosed, but I am a psychiatrist and I can recognize the signs and symptoms. And as you'll see, a lot of the higher functioning borderlines never get an official diagnosis because they don't think they have an issue. And so they don't seek, you know, that level of help. So let's go back to the first trait that can be seen, and that's Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So this is how people with borderline personality disorder feel nearly all the time. Isolated, anxious, terrified of the thought of being alone. Caring, supportive people are like friendly faces in the middle of the crowd. But the moment they do something that the borderline person interprets as a signal they're about to leave, 
the borderline panics and reacts. The person may burst into rage or beg the loved one to stay. Sometimes the person with BPD will tell you outright that they are afraid of being abandoned, but just as frequently, this fear will be expressed in other ways. Rage, for example, feeling vulnerable and out of control can provoke anger. So an example I can give this is when I was with my ex, um, you know, I would want to go out with friends occasionally and I would invite him and he didn't want to come. So I would end up going out by myself. But then when I would get home, he would act out against me. So uh, he wasn't really necessarily always verbally, verbally communicating that he was upset, but he would either, you know, show me that he was really sad or he would potentially he would like yell at me for going out with friends. And because of this repeated pattern, my own response was that I eventually, you know, stopped going out with friends. So this is an example of something, a way that might be expected for a borderline to act out because this is due to their fear of abandonment. And the next one is a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. And this is also known as splitting, which I'm sure many people are familiar with the term splitting. So people with BPD look to others to provide things they find difficult to supply for themselves, such as self-esteem, approval, and a sense of identity. Most of all, they are searching for a nurturing caregiver whose never-ending love and compassion will fill the black hole of emptiness and despair inside of them. So for people with BPD, the potential loss of a relationship can be like facing the loss of a limb or even death. At the same time, their sense of self-esteem is so low that they really don't understand why anyone would want to be with them. People with BPD are hypervigilant, looking for any cues that might reveal that the person they care about doesn't really love them after all and is about to desert them. When their fears seem to be confirmed, they may erupt into a rage, make accusations, sob, seek revenge, mutilate themselves, have an affair, or do other destructive things. And this leads us to the central irony of borderline personality disorder. People who suffer from it desperately want closeness and intimacy, but the things they do to get it often drive people away. So let's talk about more about splitting. So someone with borderline personality disorder, one of the big things is that they often perceive other people as either a saint or a demon. And when you're meeting their needs, they cast you in the role of the superhero. But when they perceive that you fail them, you become the villain. And something I think as a shrink, you sort of know. And like a lot of people will initially actually really be drawn to borderlines when they meet them because the borderline is like, oh my God, you're amazing. You're this amazing person. But if you're in the mental health field, especially if you're a shrink and you are good at picking up on this, you'll that'll be one of the like signs to you that this individual is borderline and then you're just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop because just as easily as they cast you in this perfect role, they are very likely, because no human is perfect, you, you are very likely to do something that will upset them and then you'll become, you know, the object of their hatred. So because people with borderline personality disorder have a hard time integrating a person's good and bad traits, their current opinion of someone is often based on their last interaction with them, sort of like someone who lacks a short-term memory. 
Normal persons are ambivalent and can experience two contradictory states at one time. Borderlines characteristically shift back and forth, entirely unaware of one feeling state while in another. So, a child emotionally, the borderline cannot tolerate human inconsistencies and ambiguities. He cannot reconcile another's good and bad qualities into a constant, coherent understanding of another person. At any particular moment, one is either good or evil. There is no in-between, no gray area. Nuances and shadings are grasped with difficulty, if at all. All or nothing thinking may appear in other areas of the borderline person's life, not just relationships. When there is a problem, some people with BPD may feel as if there is only one solution. Once action is taken, there's no turning back. So another way this plays out is they often have difficulty defining relationships. Someone's either their friend or their enemy, their passionate lover, or like a totally platonic friend. There's no like in-between gray areas. It's just like one or the other. So as I sort of referenced earlier, it's obviously going to be impossible to fulfill all of a borderline's needs and expectations. So if you are, for example, in a relationship with a borderline, you might take steps to meet all their needs, but then they're probably going to decide they want something else. And your role in their life may change from hero to villain several times in one day, or it can take years for them to cycle through this pattern with you. So they part of the reason behind this is because people with BPD, they're fully convinced their feelings and beliefs, even if completely skewed, are always unquestionably true. Um, so if you have one of these people in your life, your mission is going to be to maintain a consistent, balanced view of yourself despite their ups downs and whatever else so i have a question yeah so going back to splitting just briefly is there Mm -hmm. a difference between splitting like friendships and family relationships versus splitting um healthcare professionals or even like like you're at a store and somebody's like being a little bit of a Karen, and they're like, well, uh, this young lady helped me, you know, find this, so she's, like, my favorite employee, but, you know, you gave me a hard time, so, you know what I mean? Like, is there a difference between a professional, like, non-friendly setting versus, like, an interpersonal way of splitting? Well, you know, with people that they have short-term relationships with, like, you know, an interaction in a hospital, an interaction in a Starbucks, it's much more likely to this person's just going to get this one label and this person's good and this person's bad or, like, whatever. And that's, like, you know, they only have the one interaction. If the person's in their life in a, like, longer-term way, usually they will always cycle through these with you repeatedly. I see. I see. You know? So it's like a um, snapshot sometimes. Yes, yes. So both both exist. So, and then going back to the example about my ex being upset whenever I went out. So we can assume with borderlines that this rage, like I described him having, it's their response to vulnerability. They don't really want to show that they're vulnerable. Um, But one thing to note is that 
The borderline usually recognizes when they may be pushing you too far away with this behavior, and then they often become extra sweet in order to not lose you. So, like, you know, my ex would, you know, recognize, I guess, when I was getting to some sort of, like, not being able to tolerate his behavior anymore, and then he would be, like, super, super sweet to me to attempt to make up for it. And, but obviously, most people have, like, you know, a a threshold for this. And at some point, they're generally not going to tolerate it any longer. So, borderlines are very rarely capable of long-term intimate relationships, whether it be with a friend or a lover. So, part of this is, like, they definitely can have like, long-term relationships, it's a matter of how long-term. So, um, and obviously it also goes into the severity of their borderline personality disorder. Um, And I think signs of it or, like, things that I've noticed is I think it's a little easier for them to have a romantic partner than, like, intimate friendships. And I think it's because generally... When someone's in a romantic relationship with someone, especially if they've married them, they're less likely to, like, leave the individual. But if you're just friends with someone and they're always making your life difficult, you're just going to leave. But if you're in a committed relationship, you're less likely to do so. So, you know, if someone is telling you all, like, that they've never really been able to maintain relationships in their life. It's sometimes interesting to think about what the reason for that could be. Mm. Um, so my ex, when he would act out against me, he usually wouldn't like apologize or anything. And he would never take responsibility for his behavior in any way, but he would just like become a lot nicer. Um, but my mom on the other example would get super angry when I was a kid she would lash out at me and then she would beg for my forgiveness she was I think a more typical when you think of like a sweet borderline unlike my ex who I've mentioned before was also narcissistic so his behavior is a little bit different but to this day you know my mom will do something dumb (laughs) and then profusely apologize later so something Hmm. to think about so the next Um, you know, trait that we mentioned previously is identity disturbance, markedly and persistent, unstable self-image or a sense of self. So by the time most people reach their late 20s, their self-image is usually fairly consistent. Most of us take certain things for granted, such as our likes and dislikes, our values, our religious beliefs or lack thereof, our positions on important issues, and our career preferences. But Identity diffusion refers to borderline patients' profound and often terrifying sense that they do not know who they are. Normally, we experience ourselves consistently through time in different settings and with different people. This continuity of self is not experienced by the person with BPD. So one thing that this made me think of is my ex. And I met him when I was in my early 20s and he was in his mid-30s. And, um, shortly after we met, he met his, like, bio dad for, like, the first time, and he absolutely hated his 
bio dad, although it was like not oh. totally clear why. And he was like, he would talk about how upset he was by this and how he didn't know who he was anymore. So this is really, you know, portraying that. And, you know, he was in his late 30s by the time it ended the relationship, but he could never make concrete plans for his future. He can never commit to anything. He really sensed to lack knowing who he was as a person, which um, we can, as we see, is part of borderline personality disorder. Yeah, that would be hard for anybody you know, mm-hmm. obviously to deal with. And I think that, you know, relating, like linking his bio dad to his identity, um, that would be, I, I mean, I think that that is kind of a normal thing to go through a normal reaction. But when you add a personality disorder and already a predilection to extreme emotion and, and reacting to them, um, yeah, I, that that's, there's a lot of layers to that. Yeah, that's why I always think someone, if they're going to meet a bio parent as an adult, like even in their 30s or whatever, you need to be very emotionally stable. Because for anyone, it's going to, you know, uh, disrupt their sense of identity because you have an idea of who this person is. Sure. Um, and clearly who you meet is not going to match that. So, yeah, yeah, it can be difficult. So another part of this is uh, a borderline individual stating like they feel empty inside, feeling that they are different people depending on whom they are with, being dependent on others for cues about how to behave, what to think, and how to be feeling, um, and sort of like feeling panicked and bored when alone can also be part of this um, feeling like they're never good enough. So, and some things to keep in mind is that for people with BPD, they judge themselves as harshly as they judge others. So whatever they do is never good enough. I think we need to point out that the exception here is someone who's also narcissistic and um, I'll throw a stat at you. 25% of people with borderline personality disorder also have coexisting narcissistic personality disorder. I was going to ask what the most common comorbid personality disorder was or if yes, there's any other the, two that go together as mm-hmm. much as And that's narcissism. obviously, you know, I think it can be like it's natural to have empathy towards someone who is suffering even if they're making you suffer on some level as well as a result of, you know, their behaviors and stuff like that. But I think when those two are together, um, it's very, very difficult for anyone to have empathy because not only do they ruin, like, everyone else's lives, they also, like, think they're superior at the same time and don't think, you know, that there's anything wrong with them or anything like that. Um, At least not anything that they have any control over. So that goes to the next thing that we should think about. People with BPD, they see themselves as helpless victims of other people, even when their own behavior has affected the outcome of a a particular situation. So they often take on the role of the victim. So the victim role gives them the illusion that they are not responsible for their own actions. So my ex, he was, like I said, 
in his mid to late 30s during our relationship, and he would consistently blame his parents for his inability to accomplish anything in life. Like, but there wasn't anything like terrible that his parents did to him. He was just like still blaming them. Um, you know, he didn't have like a history of abuse or anything as far as I know. And, and for the record, this is not a millennial. No, he, uh, I guess would be like, yeah, he would be right in the generation above that. Huh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then and then another way this plays out is I see with my mom a lot. She'll, you know, do something that uh, isn't necessarily nice or kind. And then she'll divert responsibility for action. She'll be like, oh, my God, I was in so much pain. You know, I was sick. I wasn't thinking right. So you know, taking the victim role instead of accepting responsibility for the own ways that they cause negative negativity in their lives. So then we can go on to the next one, which is impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging. So people with BPD are characterized by impulsivity, even recklessness. People with BPD may also try to fill the emptiness and create an identity for themselves through impulsive behaviors such as binging and purging, indiscriminate sexual activity, shoplifting, and we talked about all these things before. But the biggest one is that BPD and substance abuse disorders often go hands in hand. And especially as like a psychiatrist, you're going to see this combination because if you have both borderline personality disorder and you have a substance abuse disorder, there's a good chance that at the very least the substance use disorder is going to make you end up seeking mental health treatment at some point. And I could see how the victim role would play into that. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the poor me, you know, like, you know, poor me. Um, I need to drink to or use substances, use drugs to escape from this you know, it's a shitty situation because of everything else, and I am not at fault at all. I'm just kind of a product of it, like that type of mentality. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know the exact statistic about, like, how many people who have substance use disorders also have borderline, and then how many people have borderline also have substance use disorders. But it's definitely a very hard combination to treat. And then if you throw in something else, like, narcissistic personality disorder I mean like or like I mean even antisocial like people can have a lot of combinations of things and the more that's going on there the like less likely there is to to you know be a good outcome for that individual unfortunately Mm -hmm. so the next one that we mentioned I think is what a lot of people think of first when they think of borderline personality disorder and that's the recurrent suicidal behavior gestures or threats but honestly there are plenty of people who have borderline personality disorder who don't have this at all and this is just more the people who end up presenting to emergency departments who ends up being involved with mental health care in some capacity, who, you know, sort of where they're suffering more externally. So one thing we do need to keep in mind is suicide. According to research, about 10% of all people with borderline personality disorder complete suicide. So that's a pretty rough statistic. Um, You know, that's the same as like people with schizophrenia or, you know, serious mental illnesses that sort of 
mess with their cognitive functioning on some level. And part of this is believed to be because a lot of them attempt it so many times that at some point they're successful, even if they didn't necessarily mean to be successful. It was potentially planned to be a cry for help and it was miscalculated. And now, unfortunately, they are dead as a result of that. So, and this isn't even including borderlines who engage in risky behavior that results in death, for example, drug use or, um, you know, drinking and driving or something like that. So this is just looking at people who, you know, set out to, at the very least, have some sort of suicidal behavior. And to think about this trait as a whole, Uh, And the reasoning behind it is that suicide, of course, is the ultimate way to change your mood. And then other less lethal behaviors can also be quite effective in changing, you know, the borderline individual's mood. So like overdosing, for example, can lead to long periods of sleep. Sleep in turn usually has a positive influence on regulating emotional vulnerability. And then suicidal behavior, including suicidal threats, is also very effective in eliciting behaviors from the environment, help that may be effective in reducing the emotional pain. And like, for example, someone broke up with you, so now you threaten suicide, and now they get back together with you. Or you hate, you know, the place you're staying at, and so you go to the emergency department, and you tell a doctor that, like, you cut your wrist, and now you get admitted to the psych unit, and you get to get away from the individual you hate that you live with. So, but we definitely need to distinguish between suicidality and suicidal behavior, and then self-mutilating behavior, because it's, it's especially prevalent among, like, adolescents to self-mutilate, for example, cutting, and they'll tell you that this isn't a suicide attempt and that, you know, they were just doing it to feel better or cope, um, you know, it can be for a multitude of reasons, but often like their family members or the people around them don't understand that. And they think that cutting is automatically suicidal. But as a psychiatrist, we know that the rates of, even if you cut your wrist with the intention of dying, it's actually quite difficult to die that way even if you do everything right and hit all your arteries and all that because just clotting happens so quickly um so yes an individual sometimes might not know that and might do really serious cuts and actually think that they could die but you know i think it's pretty obvious that everybody knows that you're not going to die from like shallower cuts to your wrist especially um you know if they're horizontal so Another type of self-mutilation that we need to keep in mind is that dangerous or compulsive behavior can be a type of this. For example, overeating to the point of obesity or provoking physical fights with others. I have a question. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say to the people that say that, oh, well, the cutting and suicide attempts are quote-unquote cry for attention because I haven't heard you once bring up that this is like an attention-seeking um I it's not in the criteria it it, I mean what do you think so it varies from person to person but um you know I would say for 
so part of it is that like is the person telling others what they're doing so if someone's like cutting their wrist and then they're going to someone and being like hey I cut my wrist it's very likely it's a cry to help if someone's you know posting on their snapchat I'm gonna kill myself it's very likely it's a cry for help so but like let's say something is found out like the parents somehow find out that their child is cutting themselves, but the child never told them or anyone else. Um, you know, so usually we go off based off of, are they telling other people about it? If they're telling other people about it, it's a cry for help. They don't intend on, you know, actually ending their lives. It doesn't mean that they're not suffering, though. Like, right. you know, c- clearly someone, even if they are, like, cutting their wrists for attention they're suffering on some level that they would right, want that to do that. Right, that comes from somewhere. That that does not come from a good place. Um, yes. But, yeah, I mean, some people would argue just having the scars so that people in a visible place. And, I mean, you've yeah. heard of uh, teens covering them up with, the, with bracelets or long sleeves, but mm-hmm. putting them in a place that's visible to other people versus... Yeah, so, like, just, some, a lot of... Uh, teens like cut in places that you can't see but then some clearly put it somewhere that's very visible Um, so like you know the first thing when I am assessing someone in the emergency department for suicidality it's usually how did you get here because the answer to that question tells me a lot like did someone find you trying Mm. to hang yourself and call you know 911 or did you take the bottle of pills and overdose, but you immediately told your mom right after? You immediately told your significant other. So, you know, we look at these things about whether it's actually suicidal behavior with suicidal intent versus a gesture or just self-mutilating behavior because there's like suicidal actions with suicidal intent then below that it's suicidal gestures which are usually a cry for help or attention and then self-mutilating behavior which can be for attention or can just be an expression of pain or could be potentially both but i would point out like you said that all need to be taken just as seriously because of accidents like people think oh i'm used to these pills or i can't overdose you know or oh i know how to cut myself so i won't you know, bleed out, but I, you still have to take everything at equal Potentially. So I wouldn't fully agree with that because sometimes, like, for example, if you're a psychiatrist and someone is doing suicidal gestures repeatedly to try to gain, you know, psychiatric admission, um, you don't want to enable their behavior. And, you know, you have to think about, like, is there something we can offer on with an inpatient hospitalization that is going to change that outcome and you know potentially obviously if things are really severe and you determine that you may admit them but you don't want to make that their coping mechanism like trying escalating it enables them in a way okay that makes sense and the on the reality is that for someone under 18 they're just like generally always going to get admitted. So that starts to enable this as a coping mechanism. Then they hit 18, 
and they're seen by an adult psychiatrist and the situation's different and now we don't really, you know, we're not going to just admit them because their parents say they don't feel safe taking them home, um, you know, and now they've learned to cope with their feelings by displaying suicidality in some way and then getting admitted and getting to escape from the environment that they find unpleasant. So, you know, things are not, I don't want to hate on, like, child adolescent psychiatry and how things are handled. But, you know, too, it's very, it's almost never that kids under 18 are labeled borderline, and that can be doing them a disservice. Often they're labeled Mm. bipolar and start on, like, antipsychotics and stuff like that. And, you know, it can be very, very apparent that that is not actually what's going on. That was actually a question that I had, I just wrote down while we were talking. Is there an analogous disorder that you could diagnose under 18? For example, let me know if I get this wrong. Uh, oppositional defiant disorder and antisocial. Yeah. Is there an analogy or do you just so, sit on someone knowing when they're 18, we can, you know, it'll reveal itself. And you're, So you know. I think, you know, you should just be stating that you should consider borderline personality disorder um, even while someone is a teen. But a lot of people will, you know, make jokes about how like oppositional defiant disorder is just like a code term for like borderline personality disorder in teens which I don't think is doing someone as much of a disservice as if they get like labeled bipolar or something like that interesting so I think I'm going to move on to the next one which is affective instability and or I think you know some people will refer to this as like labile mood or things like that so essentially it's a marked reactivity of mood. So when we mentioned intense episodic dysphoria, irritability or anxiety, these things lasting anywhere from a few hours to a few days. Um, so this is the symptom that's actually the most sensitive in studies for borderline personality disorder of all the symptoms. I think a lot of people are like, oh, the suicidality one. But actually it's that quick flip of moods that getting really upset over sometimes nothing sometimes minor things and this lasting anywhere from a few hours to a few days um and oftentimes i think when people call someone bipolar they're actually referring to this mm-hmm. these, these mood swings these negative mood swings and something else i want to point out is when you are like a med student and you're reading you're you're studying for your little psych exam or whatever you'll learn about something called cyclothymia which is like rapidly fluctuating moods and that doesn't really get diagnosed in real life and I feel like it's more consistent with potentially describing affective instability and yes borderline individuals can also just as much as they can have you know these small episodes of dysphoria they can also have like uh, short little episodes that are consistent with symptoms of hypomania, even though that's not really mentioned here. It's definitely something we see in reality Interesting. Quite often. I, it's really interesting. Yeah. I always wondered if maybe it was just like a partially treated affective disorder one way or another, but mm-hmm. I guess that mm-hmm. probably would, being treated, would probably exclude it from the criteria. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if someone's on medication for 
you know, they're trying and failing a lot of medications that should be targeting their symptoms that would make something like borderline personality disorder something that really needs to be considered at that point. So something that is mentioned in this book is that living with a borderline partner is often described as heaven one minute and hell the next, like their Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I think when I read that, it like really, really resonated with me because in my mind when I was with my ex, there was this one side of him that was so sweet, so loving, so caring, and then this one side that was so awful, so horrible, and they always seemed like two different people. And I stayed with him for so long because I had so much empathy, care, and love for that sweet side of him. And then this also comes into play where you get the name of the book, Stop Walking on Eggshells, because of this effective instability when you are you know, spending time with a borderline person, especially if you live with them, you start walking on eggshells around them because you're, you don't know what's going to set them off. And I constantly felt this way with my ex. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, I think it's really, if you do feel like you're walking on eggshells around someone, I think you really need to think deeper about your relationship And should I have this person in my life? If I tell them, you know, that I feel this way too, how are they going to react to it? And that will tell you a lot as well. Like, you know. Yeah, and I could see how walking on eggshells, the, you know, could lead to, I don't want to say like lying, but, you know, not telling the entire truth because you don't know what they're going to do if they find out the full truth. And then that leads to more anger, more trust issues. So even that isn't, you know, that's not necessarily like a solution. Like, oh, just be careful what you say. Like, absolutely not. Yeah, for sure. It's not. And it does happen. And I did, um, you know, start not being fully honest towards the end of my relationship because I wanted to get out in a safe manner. Yeah. So that leads us to the next one, which is chronic feelings of emptiness. I don't really have anything to say about this. I feel like it's, you know, it is what it is, and it's something that borderline individuals will often describe feeling. So the next one, inappropriate, intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. And the examples that were given were frequent displays of temper, constant anger, recurrent physical fights. So if you care about someone with BPD, you're probably very familiar with this trait. Borderline rage is usually intense, unpredictable, and unaffected by logical argument. It is like a torrential flash flood, a sudden earthquake, or a bolt of lightning on a sunny day, and it can disappear as quickly as it appears. So I experienced this with both my mom and my ex. So my mom, when I was a kid, like... You know, definitely the walking on eggshells was there, the not knowing what was going to set her off, and then she would get so, so angry, and it was so scary, and, you know, like, yelling, she looked really scary, you know, she would, quote, spank me, but it wasn't, you know, she was very conservative Christian, but it was more like going into like physical abuse where it was like, you know, more like beatings and you have bruises covering your body. So, you know, this intense anger is probably the scariest trait of 
borderline personality disorder if you have one of these individuals in your life. Um, and one thing about borderline personality disorder too is a lot of people do grow out of it a bit, not completely, but often the symptoms lessen as people age. And I think like my mom, her symptoms of it have definitely lessened now versus like when I was a child. Um, you know, but not everyone grows out of it, but it is common for people to be like, quote, less borderline as they age. Because I bet it takes a lot of energy, you know, mm-hmm. to feel these things, to have the outbursts. And eventually, I feel like your body's just got to decide, you know, this isn't, this is taking too much, you know, and they could still go through kind of like an inner, you know, an inner turmoil every once in a while, but maybe the physical and you know, you know, what you see on the outside might be a little bit less over time. Yeah, I just feel like there's sort of three options and that's that, you know, they're, they realize that their symptoms are causing like negativity to their life. So they lessen some of their behaviors or um, they end up having no one in their life at all uh, because, no. you know, they've never uh, changed their behavior in a positive directional or, you know, they are no longer with us and everything is so severe that it results in um, death either by suicide or by risky behavior or something like that. Right. So, and with my ex, this was also definitely true, like the crazy, crazy rages, you know, and he didn't really have any really crazy rages until we were together like it was on a more subtle level it was always there but it was more subtle um until we've been together for like a year and a half and that's part of this too it's they don't necessarily people with borderline don't necessarily show everything up front um and you know when it started to get bad he would like scream at me and you know, there was definitely sexual abuse. And I think a lot of people try when they're in a relationship and they are being sexually abused by their partner, they try to like pretend that that's not happening because who wants to, to think that like, you're, you know, you're being raped by the person you're with, but this is a very real thing that happens. And then towards the end of the relationship, when I was like trying to break up with him and stuff, that's when it got the worst. And he was like screaming at me. He was in my face. Um, like one time he slapped me, he was throwing things at me. And then like during all of this, like obviously I was very scared for my life. And I remember one time he was like making fun of me because he was like, he was like in my face and he was like, oh, what did you think that I was going to hit you? So, you know, um, yeah. And then I think too, we need to talk about this is why if you are with someone who is abusing you, it can be so difficult to leave because if you've been with them for years and they have cut you off from everyone else and you don't really have Ooh. anyone else and like you might you literally just might not might not have the resources to leave easily and you might also be scared of getting murdered if you do which is what happened to me um although eventually I was able to leave so obviously there's a spectrum for people who you know like my mom versus like my ex and how bad these things can get. Um, And something to keep in mind is if you are being attacked verbally or physically by someone with BPD, keep in mind that even experienced mental health professionals may at times take borderline rage 
personally and become upset. And this has happened to me. It's happened to all of us. Um, even when you're like outside and not living with someone and like you're their therapist or their psychiatrist or whatever, it can, they can still like bring you into their circle and upset them with, upset you with how they lash out at you. Yeah. So one thing that the book said, which sort of stood out to me is that, um, you know, he wrote, I think that borderlines are concerned with only one thing, losing love. One corner, they get very scared and show that by getting angry. Anger is easier to feel than fear and makes them feel less vulnerable. Quote, I strike before being struck. And obviously this isn't always the case and there's so many layers to everything that goes on. But it's something, you know, for a lot of borderlines, it really does, like, if you think about the times that they have anger or rages, it lines up to, like, potentially like a fear of losing you and acting out in a response like the cycle like I just said my ex got really bad when I was trying got the worst when I was trying to leave him like very actively terrible so and moving on the last symptom that we mentioned was or trait is the transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms so let's talk about what dissociation is. Have you ever arrived home from work without remembering how you got there? You've traveled the route so many times that your brain let your eyes and reflexes do the driving. The this out of it feeling is a mild type of dissociation. People who are severely dissociating, however, feel unreal, strange, numb, or detached. They may or may not remember exactly what happened while they were gone. The degree of disassociation can vary from the car trip home variety to the extreme disassociation. And in extreme cases, people with BPD may lose all contact with reality for a brief period of time. But I just want to say that's really, really rare. Um, You know, obviously it's a spectrum, like we said, from driving to losing all contact with reality um but I'd say that that extreme is incredibly rare and not seen quite frequently um but you know obviously for people with borderline they might have the just really out of it not being with it um very mild disassociative symptoms more often So that's all the main traits that are in the DSM. But there are still a lot of symptoms of borderline that are just not in the DSM. And these are some symptoms that the book Stop Walking on Eggshells goes through, which I love. And the first other symptom it mentions is pervasive shame. So they mention another book. John Bradshaw's book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, which I have and I read part of, but I haven't finished. And it's really funny because I read this Stop Walking in Eggshells first like three, four years ago. And um, and I hadn't read this book then. And then I went back to read this book, you know, another time to do this podcast. And I was like, oh my God, like I've started reading that book, but I haven't finished it. So anyways, this book, it's not about borderline personality disorder, yet his experience explanation of toxic shame and the resulting feelings and behaviors epitomizes BPD. Bradshaw writes, 
Toxic shame is experienced as the all-pervasive sense that I am flawed and defective as a human being. It is no longer an emotion that signals our limits. It is a state of being, a core identity. Toxic shame gives you a sense of worthlessness, the feeling of being isolated, empty, and alone in a complete sense. Exposure to oneself lies at the heart of toxic shame. A shame-based person will guard against exposing his inner self to others, but more significantly, he will guard against exposing himself to himself. And this author sees shame as the root of issues such as rage, criticism and blame, caretaking, codependency, addictive behavior, excessive people-pleasing, and eating disorders. In their typical all-or-nothing way, people with BPD may either become consumed by their shame or deny to themselves and others that it even exists. Shame is also a core issue for many non-borderlines, especially those who remain in abusive relationships, such as myself during the period of time (laughs) I was in that relationship. And so another thing that is mentioned is undefined boundaries and how people with borderline personality disorder have difficulty setting and maintaining personal limits, both their own and those of others. So because they don't have any boundaries themselves, they will often have a really difficult time respecting another person's boundaries. Okay, next, control issues. Borderlines may need to feel in control of other people because they feel so out of control with themselves. In addition, they may be trying to make their own world more predictable and manageable. People with BPD may unconsciously try to control others by putting them in no-win situations, creating chaos that no one else can figure out, or accusing others of trying to control them. So going back to Bradshaw, he believes that shame also leads to oversteering. Those who must control everything fear being vulnerable. Why? Because to be vulnerable opens one up to be shamed. Control is a way to ensure that no one can ever shame us again. It involves controlling our own thoughts, expressions, feelings, and actions. It involves attempting to control other people's thoughts, feelings, and actions. Hmm. Yeah. And then the next sort of symptom that's mentioned is lack of object constancy. When we're lonely, most of us can soothe ourselves by remembering the love that others have for us. This is very comforting, even if these people are far away, sometimes even if they're no longer living. This ability is known as object constancy. Some people with BPD, however, find it difficult to evoke an image of a loved one to soothe them whenever they feel upset or anxious. If the person is not physically present, they don't exist on an emotional level. So, you know, this just makes me think of, like, an anxious attachment style. Which is obviously discussed in her attachment episode. Right. And it also, it's it's a developmental stage that... Yes. You're supposed to be able to develop this when, like, you're a baby. So, you know, your mom, you know, the studies that were done with babies, like, the appropriate response is your mom leaves the room, you might cry a little bit but then you start playing by yourself and then when she get, comes back you get like happy and delighted to see her because you you um you know you're able to soothe yourself and then you're able to enjoy that right. relationship when it comes back into your life but um you know I sort of think of like people who have 
borderline personality disorder on the more mild spectrum and without coexisting personality disorders probably is presenting as an anxious attachment style, but people who are more severe or have other personality disorders, such as narcissistic personality disorder, they probably have more of the combined anxious avoidant type. Hmm. So one circle. (laughs) Yes, yes. Obviously, I have to shout out attachment because all this stuff sort of together gives you the best frame of reference for how to understand people. So if it hasn't been clear, there are two main subtypes of BPD. So there's lower functioning, more conventional, borderline, sort of what most people think of. And there's higher functioning, more invisible borderlines. And that's usually the people who are missed and not diagnosed and they're in your life and they're giving you a lot of pain and you're not sure why. So first let's focus on the lower functioning conventional borderlines. So they tend to have the following characteristics. Under stress, they cope through destructive, well, self-destructive behaviors such as self-injury and suicidality. The term for this is acting in as opposed to acting out. So they may spend a lot of time in the hospital because of self-mutilations, severe eating disorders, substance abuse, or suicide attempts. For this reason, they may be well-known to treatment providers and fit the more conventional stereotype of someone with BPD. They may be incapacitated by their illness and inability to work. Some borderlines even end up on disability. They often have overlapping or co-occurring disorders such as eating disorders. People who are close to low-functioning conventional borderlines often find themselves living from crisis to crisis. They may feel manipulated by self-mutilation and suicide attempts. However, because the borderline is obviously ill, The non-borderline individual in their life usually receives a lot of understanding and support from family and friends. So yes, when most people think of borderlines, they're thinking of the lower functioning, conventional borderline person, not the higher functioning, invisible borderline person, which in contrast tend to have these characteristics. So they often act perfectly normal much of the time, at least to people outside of like their family or someone who lives with them or is their partner living with them, things like that. They tend to hold jobs and appear to have no trouble with the usual activities of daily living, which makes them, quote, high functional. They usually show their side only to people they know very well. That's why anyone who's super close to them say these people bring to mind Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They coped with their pain by acting out instead of acting in projecting it onto someone else, for example, by raging, blaming, criticizing, making accusations, becoming physically violent, and engaging in verbal abuse. So unlike conventional borderlines, they usually don't project vulnerability. So when we think of like the projecting vulnerability type, that would be like Marilyn Monroe, Princess Diana. Oh, whoa. So, yeah. Yeah, who are both suspected to have borderline personality disorder. Although I will not comment on that, but you can Google it and look it up yourself. Yeah. Interesting. Because you know I love to, you know, correlate. Oh, yes. Yeah. Highly recommend. Just go down a Google little, you know, rabbit hole with I will be there once I get out of this, (laughs) the one that I'm currently in. Excellent. (laughs) So with these higher functioning borderlines, they may feel the same shame and fear as their less functional, more conventional counterparts. 
But their denial is so complete that when they say there's nothing wrong with me, there's something wrong with you, they truly believe it. These BPs may fiercely refuse to seek help unless someone threatens to end the relationship. That's why they are invisible to the mental health community. They're not included in the statistics about the number of people with BPD, perhaps drastically lowering the actual figure. If they do go to counseling, it may well be because someone has given them an ultimatum. Couples therapy is often not productive because they use it to try to prove they're right and their partner is wrong. Non-borderlines involved with this type of BP need to have their perceptions and feelings validated. Friends and family members who don't know the borderline very well may not believe stories of rage and verbal abuse. Many non-BPs told us that even their therapists refuse to believe them when they describe the borderline person's out-of-control behavior. So, um, some examples of this. So, and before I go in, what I am going to say is, obviously there's a lot of people with overlapping characteristics. There's a lot of room between high-functioning borderlines and low-functioning borderlines. And, you know, there can be people who are more, you know, somewhere between the two. Um, and then, obviously, something to consider is that stressful life events are more likely to trigger dysfunctional coping mechanisms in all borderlines and also in others who don't have the disorder. So, like, you know, just because someone's having a freak out and something terrible happened to them doesn't mean that they're borderline, okay? Right, it could be like an <laughs> acute stress reaction or yes. something like that, yeah. Um, so I'd say, you know, my mom is definitely, like, for sure, the high-functioning category. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I was thinking about saying more on that, but I won't. But what I will say is that my friend, I would tell, like, my friends a lot about, like, her, quote, crazy behavior. And when I meet her, they'd be like, your mom is so sweet. Oh, like, yeah. I don't understand what you're Aww. saying, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, just because someone's one way around you doesn't mean they're that way around everyone else or behind closed doors or, you know, so consider that. And then what I did want to mention about the couples therapy is that when I was with my ex – I didn't exactly go to couples therapy with him, but I went to this, uh, I did this thing that was similar. It was like for effective communication. And um, and when you do this, it's not like the person won't say anything about either individual. They'll just like teach you how to communicate better. And he just completely used everything completely against me to gaslight me. And then he ended up telling me that I had enough issues that I needed to see a therapist. And then me seeing a therapist made me realize that he was, you know, had all these issues and that I needed to leave. So I guess the best thing he ever did was tell me the problem was me and that I need to see a therapist. Yeah. Yep. So next, how do we make sense of borderline behavior? So one thing to think about is that generally – Healthy people base their feelings on facts, but borderlines use their feelings to create facts. They will revise the facts to match their feelings. And this is a good explanation for why their recollection of events often differs from yours. Another thing to think about is they do a lot of projection. Now, projection gets thrown a lot around. So what is project projection? 
Projection is denying one's own unpleasant traits, behaviors, or feelings by attributing them, often in an accusing way, to someone else. So my ex would do this so much. So he would tell me I was stupid, even though I was in medical school and um, he didn't do anything beyond a high school education. Um, he would tell me I was lazy, even though once again, I was in medical school and he was unemployed living off my medical school loans for like half of our relationship. Nice. He would tell me I was fat or getting fat, even though, um, objectively I'm a thin person. On the other hand, he definitely was gaining weight in our relationship. Oh, that's he, interesting. Yeah. I wanted cats and obviously I now have cats, but. He would never get, let me get any cats because he said I wouldn't be able to care for them. And we all know I'm very capable of caring for cats. So perhaps it was a projection of his own inability to care for something. Care. Um, right. And he would always tell me that like I was terrible at adulting, that I couldn't clean properly or take care of things, even though I was the adult and essentially like his parent in our relationship. Like, um, you know, when... He entered our relationship. His, like, driver's license was suspended for some reason for, like, years, and I helped him get it back. Like, I took care of all the bills. Like, I did everything. So Besides this, the fact that you're given a huge pass when you're in med school, like, it's okay to not clean every day. It's okay yeah. to let a couple of bills lapse, like, if you're studying and, you know, you're yeah. just out of, out of it. So, I mean, yeah. By that metric, you were doing, like, above and beyond, and he, this is a good example mm-hmm. of projecting. You're right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so what we think the reasoning behind the projection is, specifically for borderlines, is that their unconscious hope is that by projecting this unpleasant stuff onto another person, by tagging someone else and making them the problem – the person with BPD will feel better about themselves. And they do feel better for a little while, but the pain comes back, so the game is played again and again and again. Projection also has another purpose. Your loved one unconsciously fears that if you find out they're not perfect, you will leave them. But you know what would make you not leave them if you think you're the fucked up one and that you're lucky to have them. Ah. So... That's where the projecting comes in. And there's another term that we need to talk about. Projective identification, which is one of my favorite terms. It's like, I think shrinks love it, right? Projection is like what lay people misuse all the time, but projective identification is is the shrink's friend. And the reason why we have to be aware of this is because it can happen with us, with patients. Uh. It can project something onto us, and then we can have something go happen call projective identification so what is this so you may actually come to believe the accusations of the person with bpd you may even start to behave in such a way as to make the accusations true this is called projective identification projective identification brings to mind the political political cliche if you repeat a lie often enough People will believe you. It's also a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy. Aha. Yes. So let's say your borderline partner accuses you again and again of not loving them and wanting to abandon them. For years, you try to get them to see that this isn't true, but nothing works. Exhausted, you realize that the relationship is over 
and you need to get on with your life, thereby abandoning them. So, some adults who enter into relationships with borderlines feel brainwashed by their accusations and criticism. The techniques of brainwashing are simple. Isolate the victim, expose them to consistent messages, mix with sleep deprivation, add some form of abuse, get the person to doubt what they know and feel, keep them on their toes, wear them down, and stir well. The CIA actually used that very recipe to try to create people who could, they were trying to create psychics mm. um, for use, and that those were the exact tactics that they used. Um, it was like during the Cold War. That's wild, anyway. and we should we should talk about that in a whole other episode because <laughs> it seems pretty freaking cool. Okay, so anyways, this was what happened to me. This is why it was hard to leave. When they convince you that no one else would want you, the only way you can leave them is if you decide a life alone forever is better than being with them. So something else that happens. Everything becomes your fault. So... A lot of the things we said earlier were his traits, but he was saying were more mine. Another example is, like, he told me I was a terrible driver, but then I never, like, got into an accident the whole time we were together. And, like, one time he was driving my car and just, like, Are you sure? someone. <laughs> Are you I, sure? I have not gotten into an accident for quite a long time now, and I'm quite proud of it. And all my driving issues were related to un- improperly treated ADHD, which I've also luckily grown a bit out of, so. No tickets when you were with him either? Uh, just... not, one, one maybe, one ticket, which it was the last ticket I got, speeding <laughs> ticket, second year of med school, and I've been in the clear since then. Oh, good, good. I just remember, like, your stories, like, in med school, it was like, well, here I am again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I did have... Well, I mean, I had one accident in med school. I mean, that's soft topic, but it was because uh, my tire treads. My I needed to replace my tires, but I didn't know that I needed to replace my tires. And it was raining, <laughs> and I was on the highway. So my car just, like, I was on, like, a ramp, and it just, like, spun 360. <laughs> I had a lot of terrible things happen in med school, but none were a result of me being a bad driver. No, of course that. not. You just had really bad car luck I remember yes I remember but that. before yeah. med school I definitely had a lot of driving issues that were my fault but they were also very related to ADHD <laughs> um, which we'll talk about another episode I can tell you all those stories <laughs> yes so going back to this often what seems like angry impulsive and manipulative behavior is really a misguided attempt to elicit involvement and caring. But even though their behavior is not really about you, excessive criticizing and blaming can cross the line and become verbal abuse. So, I want to stop right now to talk about abuse. So, when I broke up with my ex, like, I had to admit to myself that he was, like, abusive to me, and that was really hard to do. And then I didn't, I felt like, you know... This wasn't something to be shameful of, and this is something I should be open about. So, you know, of course, obviously, the downfall of my relationship would come up with friends, and I would tell them, yeah, you know, he was abusive towards me. And my friends, almost every single one, almost without a hitch, would say, oh my god, I didn't know he was hitting you. 
And that would infuriate me because first off, yes, he hit me like once towards the end of our relationship when I was actively trying to leave, um, you know, but we all know physical abuse is quote bad. And when you're being physically abused, like, you know, you're in a bad situation, you know, you need to leave. Obviously you can like fear for your life and things like that, but it's a very big blatant sign to you that, okay, this is bad and I shouldn't be in it. And you can potentially choose to ignore or you can try to work to getting out of the situation even though obviously can be very difficult the thing about emotional and verbal abuse is this can be much more subtle and because it's more subtle it makes it harder for the individual to realize that they're being abused and that they need to leave the situation okay So let's define emotional abuse. Emotional abuse is any behavior that is designed to control another person through the use of fear, humiliation, and verbal or physical assaults. It can include verbal abuse and constant criticism to more subtle tactics like intimidation, manipulation, and refusal to ever be pleased. Emotional abuse is like brainwashing that it systematically wears away at the victim's self-confidence, sense of self-worth, trust in their perceptions and self-concept, whether it be by constant berating and belittling, by intimidation, or under the guise of, quote, guidance or teaching, the results are similar. Eventually, the recipient loses all sense of self and all remnants of personal value. So I think the first type of abuse, which started very early on in my relationship, was the silent treatment. So he would get mad at me. I wouldn't know why. And he would give me the silent treatment for days at a time, Um, you know, and this is called stonewalling. And it's like absolutely horrendous to experience. But if you don't know that this is a form of emotional abuse, you're just thinking about like, what did I do wrong? And like, what's wrong with me that that contributed to this issue? Because two... One thing we do need to be aware of is that, you know, I grew up with a borderline mom. So your mom is your person when you're a child who shows you what love is, right? So I got very inconsistent messages for her. So then when I entered adolescence and my 20s and things like that, I had a very warped understanding of what love was and how I looked for it. So, you know, you might ask, think like, oh, how could someone not know these things are messed up? But, you know, not everyone grew up with good representations of what love is in their childhood. And this is something that, you know, I think we sort of go into in the attachment episode, but just something to keep in mind. Right. So now let's define verbal abuse. So domination, the person resorts to threats to get their own way, verbal assaults, This includes reprimanding, humiliating, criticizing, name-calling, screaming, threatening, excessive blaming, and using sarcasm in a cutting way. It also involves exaggerating your faults and making fun of you in front of others. Over time, this type of abuse erodes your sense of self-confidence and self-worth. Abusive expectations. The other person makes unreasonable demands and expects that you will be their first priority, no matter what. This includes denouncing your needs for attention and support. Unpredictable responses. This includes drastic mood changes or sudden emotional outbursts. Living with someone like this is extremely anxiety-provoking. You may feel frightened 
unsettled and off balance. And one thing I realized once I left my relationship or even was in the process of trying to leave was that I always felt unsafe going home to him and was hoping that, you know, if there was the possibility that he wouldn't be home because, you know, I was constantly walking on eggshells at home. So why would I feel, you know, safe going there? But it took me, I guess, a very long time to realize this. So I hope that others can realize it sooner. Yeah, that that's so sad to me. Like, that's your home. Like, the definition of home, like, when we, have, when we ask patients, oh, do you feel safe at home? Like, that's just literally the definition of what should be your safe place. And to not even, to dread going home is, is horrible. Like, I, can't, I yeah. can't even imagine. Yeah. And part of the hope with this episode is maybe there's someone listening who, you know, I, I hope that if there are people who are either suffering due to someone with borderline personality disorder or, and or other things or someone who is, you know, does themselves have borderline personality disorder, that this episode will help them recognize that and then get the help they need, whatever that may be. So moving on, next is gaslighting. And this is when, and this term is obviously a term that's used by a lot of lay people now. And this is when the other person denies your perception of events and conversations. So just sort of makes you feel crazy. Or belittles but, your your perception. Yeah, yeah. So once again, go trying to make you feel like you're the crazy one. Right. Um, also, there is constant chaos. The borderline may deliberately start arguments and is in constant conflict with others. They also may be addicted to drama since it creates excitement. So... What's another thing that happens? Fear of abandonment and fear of engulfment. Sometimes it may seem as if the borderline is wanting you to keep your distance a little closer. This is a behavior pattern that results from two primary and conflicting fears. The fear of being abandoned and the fear of being engulfed or controlled by others. People with borderlines struggle daily with the issues of engulfment and abandonment. Torn between the urge to merge and the desire for independence, they may feel and look like a walking contradiction. Their actions may not make sense because at times they seek closeness and nurturing, and at other times seem compelled to drive you away. Borderlines may begin to feel engulfed or afraid of losing control, when people get too close to them. They don't know how to set healthy personal limits and genuine intimacy may make them feel vulnerable. They may be afraid you might see the real them, be repulsed and leave them. So they begin to distance themselves to avoid feeling vulnerable or controlled. They may pick a fight with you, forget to do something important or be dramatic or explosive. But then the distance makes them feel alone. Feelings of emptiness worsen and their fear of abandonment become stronger. So they make frantic efforts to get close again and the cycle repeats. So as you can see, what we're talking about there is sort of like the anxious avoidant attachment combo. Moving on. Oh yeah, go ahead. What, who would you most likely see? What personality disorder pairs, I don't want to say pairs well, but you know how you have your avoidant, wait, I'm sorry, your codependent 
and you're anxious. You know how you, like you can see they put two personalities cluster together. Cluster Cs um, will often be with cluster Bs, but cluster Bs and cluster Bs often end up together as well. Okay. Cluster As are going to be nowhere near a cluster B person. That makes sense. And so when we say cluster B, we're referring to, like, borderline narcissist. Um, we're referring to cluster C. Honest, actually, I'm not going to get too into it. But cluster C is more like uh, mild relationship issues. And then cluster A is, like, uh, almost, like, mild, very, very, like, a touch of, like, psychosis would be a way to put it. Um, but these are just personality disorders and not, like mental health concerns to an extreme extent. Could two borderlines be together? Oh yeah, two borderlines together. All, two borderlines are together all the time, but their relationship doesn't last. Uh, they they break up at some point, you know. They might even be together for years, but it won't last. It seems exhausting. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it's just sort of like how we talked about if you're anxious or avoidant um, you need a secure person, but if you're an anxious avoidant combo, like, your relationship isn't gonna last with anyone, so right. it's almost like thinking about, like, how severe these things are, and yes, anyone can have relationships that last for a certain period of time, but can they, you know, have real long-term relationships? No. So as the level of intimacy rises with these individuals, so does the degree of abandonment or engulfment issues, which results in more dramatic behaviors. This is why one this is one reason why people who don't know a borderline as well as you do may not believe your accounts of their behavior. Remember, to the person with borderline, everything is all or nothing. If it stops, it stops forever. And once you're gone, they cease to exist because they have no identity of their own. Feeling helpless in the face of both their own emotions and your unpredictable reactions, they may try to grab control in the only way they know how, by acting out in ways that to you feel intensely manipulative. They may even threaten suicide. Then, once you've caved in, the cycle begins anew. Some people with borderline may also try to test you to see how much you really care. The logic goes like this. If you really love them, you should be willing to put aside all your own desires and concentrate on fulfilling their needs. So obviously, if you don't have borderline and you are the friend, partner, or a family member of someone who does, you'll usually take these behaviors personally and you'll feel trapped in a toxic cycle of guilt self-blame, depression, rage, denial, isolation, and confusion. Meanwhile, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no thank you. Meanwhile, the borderline's unhealthy behaviors are reinforced because the non-borderline person accepts responsibility for the feelings and actions that belong to the borderline. So a typical belief would be the actions of the person with BPD are all about me, but the fact is that the BP's actions result from a complex disorder caused by a combination of biology and environment. Mm -hmm. And another belief it's, could be it's my responsibility to solve this person's problems, and if I don't do it, no one else will. And uh, the fact is that by trying to take charge of the borderline's life, you may be giving them the message that they can't take care of themselves. You're also avoiding the opportunity to change the relationship by focusing on yourself. Another belief. 
no matter what my borderline person does, I should offer them my love, understanding, support, and unconditional acceptance. Fact, there is a big difference between loving, supporting, and accepting the person and loving, supporting, and accepting their behavior. Mm. In fact, if you support and accept unhealthy behavior, you may be encouraging it to continue and perpetuating your own suffering. So, acceptance comes when the non-borderline persons integrate the good and bad aspects of the borderline they care about and realize that the borderline persons are not one or the other, but both. And I'm going to say this is really, really difficult to do. I've been able to do it with my mom, but I was never really able to do it with my ex. Even looking back on the relationship now, I can't really combine it. It's too Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to me. Um, well, yeah, the and then you throw is, in the emotions of relationships and kind of the taste that's left in your mouth after any ex that you would have. Yeah. Just, you know, you're not willing to. It's not worth your time. You're done with it. You've moved yeah. on. Whereas your mom, it's your mom, you know? Yeah. And I definitely have, like, acceptance with her, which is right. good. You have patience. S- right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, so... Also thinking about the effect of emotional abuse on self-esteem. Emotional abuse cuts the very core of a person, creating scars that may be longer lasting than physical ones. With emotional abuse, the insults, insinuations, criticism, and accusations slowly eat away at the victim's self-esteem until they are incapable of judging the situation realistically. You may blame yourself for the abuse. Um, If you're a victim, you can become so convinced that you're worthless, that you believe that no one else would want you. And essentially this leads to um, staying in abusive situations because you believe you have nowhere else to go. And you'll stay if your ultimate fear is being all alone. But if you can get over that fear, you can leave. So the borderline's behaviors cause a great deal of anguish, but leaving can seem impossible or improbable. Non-borderlines may believe they are trapped in the relationship because they either feel overly responsible for the safety of the borderline or they may feel overly guilty for perhaps causing the borderline to feel and behave the way they do. The BP's threat of suicide or threat to harm others can paralyze the non-BP and make him or her feel as if leaving the relationship is too risky. And I already talked about, you know, how hard it was for me to leave my relationship and how all this played out. Right. So, and something else I mentioned was, and we're going to talk about now, is borderlines often insist non-borderlines in their life cut off ties with others. Too often the non-borderlines comply. Once the non-borderline becomes more isolated, several things can happen. They may become more emotionally dependent on the borderline. And because they're out of touch with the real world, the outrageousness of the borderline behavior may seem normal once there's nothing to compare it to. Friends can no longer observe the relationship and talk to the non-borderline about the unhealthy components of the relationship. And then they are eventually left to deal with their, you know, problems with the borderline on their own. Right. And so people who land themselves in this, you know, because with family members, it's not really a choice like the borderline individuals on your you can control maybe to the extent that they're in your life they replace into your life but for people who um end up in the victim role in a relationship with a borderline individual 
some things that go along with that is that this individual often performs valiant and heroic acts of kindness, no matter what the price themselves. In an effort to help the person they love, they swallow their anger, ignore their own needs, accept behavior that most people would find intolerable, forgive the same transgressions again and again. This is a common trap for the non-borderlines, especially if the borderline had an unhappy childhood and the non-borderline is trying to make up for it. Going back to my ex, he would always tell me about, like, you know, like, his prior dad left him when he was, like, a toddler and, like, his parents, his mom and his stepdad sucked and blah, blah, blah and made me feel really bad, which, you know, looking back, I, like, laugh because it's, like, and maybe that's just a coping mechanism in and of itself, but, like, his childhood was no, and I'm not trying to compare, but I'm going to compare, so I guess I am trying to compare. It was not as bad as my childhood, but I felt so much empathy for him over everything bad in his childhood that, you know, I would just be like, oh, well, you know, this happened, so that's why he's like this. But would I have given myself the same, you know, leeway? Mm, no. That's interesting. But also my own life made me the perfect person to, you know, put myself in this situation where I was a victim. Yeah. So one thing I loved that's towards the end of this book is the author reports when dealing with his own borderline partner, he decided to see a counselor. One day the counselor said to the author, aren't you being a bit pompous? Who do you think you are? God? You're not God. You are not responsible and you can't fix this person. Your job is to accept that fact, live with it, and make the decisions you have to make to live your life. So I love this quote, and I hope that if you have a borderline person in your life, you are able to think about this quote, because I can't save anyone. <laughs> like, actually, I hate when people talk about doctors saving lives, and psychiatrists too. Like, you know, it really comes down to we can be there if people want our help but we can never make anyone take help and we can never make them want to change that's on them we can can give them tools and yes you Mm -hmm. know explain it to them a million ways and one it is up to them but yes so let's say you're listening to this and you've realized someone in your life is borderline don't go straight to like calling them immediately after this episode and being like, I think you have borderline personality disorder. Because if so, Hopefully. that means you didn't listen to a word that we said. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> you realize that this would not be a good idea. So I would recommend that if you think someone in your life is borderline, a good place to start would be maybe discussing your thoughts with your own therapist if you have one and how to proceed, um, you know, if it could potentially be a good idea to talk to them about it, although in most cases it isn't. Um, You know, if you are with someone in any format, a family member or, you know, their partner, and you think they have borderline and they have a therapist, one thing you can do is you can always discuss your concerns with therapists, although they can't say anything to you. But once again, you should think about how that's going to happen. Like, usually, uh, like, you know, it, it, is that conversation going to help the individual or is it going to cause more harm? 
But that's one thing you can do. So once again, remember, you cannot force someone to want to change their behavior. But one exception to the don't confront someone about having borderline personality disorder would be if someone is really distressed by their symptoms and they're like desperate for answers and you think you could potentially talk to them about the possibility of this in a really loving way. That would be like the one exception. But please, you know, like almost every day I get text messages from my younger sisters and they're like, mom really needs to go to therapy, blah, 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 blah. And every single time I have to explain to them if someone does not have insight that their behavior is an issue, therapy is futile. I've not told my mom I think she's borderline personality disorder. I don't think it would help her at all. My ex, I don't think it would have helped him at all, okay? So, but there are, with my patients, actually, um, essentially, if I think they have borderline and it's not like a brief, you know, evaluation, if if we, if I saw them on the inpatient unit, if they're my therapy patient, if they're my med management patient, I will tell them because I think that's my role as their psychiatrist to tell them that and hopefully it'll help them, um, you know, and there's a way to present it that comes across better than, than ways that things can be presented. But I would think if you're in someone's life on a personal level, you should really, really be hesitant about this. Um, unfortunately, partially is because it's so stigmatized that people are very, you know, really don't want to hear this. So what if, you know, you have a border in, borderline individual in, their, in your life and you don't necessarily confront them with the fact that you think they have this, but you're trying to get them help and treatment and they refuse it. Well, there's still hope. Although you can't change the person with borderline, you can change yourself. By examining your own behavior and modifying your actions, you can get off the emotional roller coaster and reclaim your life. So if this person's your partner, you don't have to be with them. If they're your parent and you're an adult, you can have more limited or no contact with them. If they're your child and they're an adult, once again, you can have limited or no contact with them. If they're your sibling, you know, same thing applies. So you don't have to destroy your life for someone else is the real real thing here. Now, what if you're listening and you're hearing some of the traits and hopefully, you know, don't assume just because you have any that you have it. So really it's like, do you have like five or more of the traits and is this negatively impacting your life? Uh, a lot of the thoughts would be, you know, is this my fault and is there any hope? Because sometimes what happens is a patient will be like, you know, I think I'm borderline, but you know, I heard there's no, no cure for that. So, um, addressing first the, is this my fault? Well, borderline personality disorder, as we've sort of mentioned before, it can be due to both environmental reasons, um, a huge environmental reason for the development of borderline personality disorder is like a history of sexual abuse, but it can be many other things like any abuse or whatever. But there's also a lot of, you know, just someone having genetics for it. Some people will not really tell you any history of abuse and they can have really severe borderline personality disorder. So then we start to think, you know, they were genetically predisposed to, you know, suffer with these symptoms. Um, 
and people with borderline personality disorder, just like a lot of mental disorders, uh, scans show your brains are different. So things are different for you. Um, then you think, why was I never diagnosed before? You might even be seeing like a psychiatrist. Um, and part of the reason for this is that it's a newer diagnosis than a lot of other things. Um, oftentimes if, if your mental health providers aren't people who are like recently graduated from training psychiatrists, there is unfortunately a high likelihood they are not diagnosing borderline when they should. A lot of people end up carrying a bipolar diagnosis instead. We talked about this earlier, especially seized with individuals who get labeled an adolescent. So, and unfortunately, many clinicians are even aware their patient has borderline, will, but will not discuss it with them due to fear that it is too stigmatizing. And please don't be one of these people. Like I said, I always discuss it. I think it is really important to discuss, okay? So if you think you have borderline, you should discuss it with your therapist and or psychiatrist. There are treatments. I think the main thing is, you know, we talked about people who lack insight into borderline and would deny that they had it and would never seek help or accept help or anything like that. And that's one type of person. And those people are very unlikely to get much better. Maybe they'll get minimally better with age or reasons like that. But people who want to get better generally do. Um, the biggest thing for borderline personality disorder is therapy. Specifically, there's one type of type of therapy called DBT, which stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And it's very, in the original model, it's very intense. It involves individual therapy, it involves group therapy, it involves having a therapist on call 24-7. And although, um, you know, that intense version of it is, isn't available most places, in most urban areas or like non-rural areas, you can get into DBT groups. There might be a bit of a waiting list. You could potentially self-refer or you could ask someone else for like, you know, any providers for referral to that. But even if you're not in DBT, if you have a really good therapist, um, you know, that can also help. But studies specifically looked at people with borderline personality disorder and if they remained in, I think it was specifically DBT, for a year, which of course requires action on your part and a commitment. 60% of them, I think, had full remission of symptoms or close to full. They at least didn't meet criteria for borderline any, anymore. And medications can also help, but it's more limited. Um, more so, I think it helps with coexisting mental health disorders, like if now you've developed like an episode of depression on top of it, or, um, you know, like it, people can benefit from antidepressants, they can benefit from mood stabilizers. Um, but I think, and I think these are good things, but I think therapy would be the go-to, the first stop, and then medication second. So like we've said, the biggest factor in getting better is recognizing you have BPD and wanting to get better. And once again, like I mentioned, the people I mentioned wouldn't have insight into this and want to get help. So I want to end with a quote from the book that I really liked. And it is as follows. I met many people who had greatly improved through a combination of therapy, medication, and emotional support. Their joy in feeling normal for the first time in their lives sometimes brought me to tears. 
and for the first time, I understood how my own borderline person must have suffered. Behavior that had seemed incomprehensible to me now made sense. For the first time, I understood on a gut level that those years of unprovoked emotional assaults weren't really about me. They probably resulted from his own sense of shame and his intense fears of being abandoned. The discovery that he was a victim, too, turned some of my anger into compassion. That was a nice tie-in to the quote at the beginning. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Yep. I like to, uh, you know, do this because it helps me. But um, here are some uh characters portrayed in movies that were supposedly uh, supposed to portray someone with uh, borderline personality, but I want to go on a disclaimer that these may not be correct, but it was quite possibly the intention. Um, And an extreme case would be Winona Ryder's character, Suzanne, in Girl Interrupted. Yes. Yep. Welcome to Me, which was a movie with Chris and Wig. Silver Linings Playbook, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character. Yes. And Fatal Attraction, Glenn Glenn Close's character, which was controversial in the accuracy. But again, you know, this is not meant to offend anyone or, you know, to say that this is exactly what it looks like. It's just when you're creating a character and you're analyzing these films, this is what they felt um, or this is what they were meant to portray. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole idea is that hopefully this episode will be helpful. There really isn't enough talking about borderline because, like, you really do have to talk about so many negative things, right? Yeah. But I think we're not doing anyone any favors by not talking about this. Um, If we can help people recognize it in themselves, people who truly want to get better and be better, and then also help people recognize it in others, especially the more high-functioning borderlines, so that they don't have to unnecessarily be victims yep so that's it for today all right thank you for this consult consult.